Welcome to our last Tuesday of the Month book discussion. Just a couple of librarians talking about books we think others might enjoy. March's read is Milltown by Carrie Arsenal. Spoiler alert, we usually end up discussing endings and key plot points. I'm Amy, and joining me today is Erin, Youth and Teen Services Librarian at North Liberty Library. Welcome! Hi, Amy! Feels like this is the hundredth time we've done this. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of you who are not familiar with this book, maybe listening in to get a taste of what is to come if you're thinking about reading it, this award-winning book is what I would call two parts memoir, one part socioeconomic commentary, and one part environmental nonfiction. The author gives us an in-depth look into the life of those in rural Maine, and in many ways also a look at many rural towns across America. It's a book that I felt took a chapter or so to build, but once it did, I was hooked. So initial thoughts from you about the book. Was there anything burning that you just have to talk about? (laughs) I really liked how it's kind of linear, but it does go back and forth a little bit in the timeline, which I like because I think it breaks it up some. And I really liked her description of place because, I mean, Maine as a character in the book, if you will, is very, very omnipresent. And I liked that because I don't know anything really about Maine. I mean, I do now, but I did not before. Yes, I 100% agree with that. Maine as a place, Maine as like a sentient partner in the story, maybe. And yeah, diving into place, this whole idea also that kind of complicated that was like her question of where are we from? What is home kind of question that she explores? Because during part of this story, she is kind of exploring her personal history, her family's history, coming from Arcadia. She's Mm -hmm. Arcadian, potentially. Yes, and goes to France to trace her roots, which was interesting. I was not expecting that turn. But yes, Mexico, Maine is where the story takes place for the most part. Yes. Um, And there was just this piece of quote that I really think kind of encapsulated what this whole question was about. Each time I go home, I face a referendum on the success or failure of my relationship with it, like a dialogue between two people in a deep and complicated relationship. I guess we should maybe talk a little bit about like what in the world this book is about. I mean, that's probably logical, right? (laughs) So she the author Carrie talks about how growing up in Mexico, Maine, the main driver of the town's economy was this paper mill. And when it started, and she kind of traced the history of the environment with how paper mills came to be across the Northeast and then the construction of the mill. And it was like a company town where the founder of the mill had like, you know, the houses for the workers and that evolved over time. And then her getting out of the town and then this whole plot line about what it means to get out of a small town, what it means to stay connected to the small town, and then what it means to go back to a small town after you've left. And then 
with all of that that she's trying to figure out is the fact that all of these townspeople who are either workers at the mill or have worked at the mill or are related to people that work at the mill, how they all have various forms of cancer. And then what does that mean? And it's kind of her exploration of that. Yeah. Does that sound like a good summary? Yes. Okay. That's beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. When I was reading it, it made me think about, so there's the book Dreamland by Sam Quinones that talks about Portsmouth, Ohio, and the industry that grew up there, and then what happened when the industry left, and that's when the heroin epidemic kind of came into that part of Ohio. But like the town's swimming pool that they had was like a central focus of that book. And it was almost like Maine as a character, that swimming pool, because it was like football fields, large swimming pool. And it became its own character. And then just the stories of like, what happens when you have industry that moves into a place and then like all of the environmental things that happen when no one is watching or when everyone is watching. And that, so like I've read a lot of other nonfiction books that were kind of similar to this. And also it made me think a lot about Erin Brockovich, which I know seems a little bit out of left field, but she uncovered what P and G was doing out in California with the town that was close by. And it was so similar with these people that were getting their water on the land that P and G was in, and it was all contaminated and their kids all were dying of these really rare cancers and the company was doing everything they could to hide it so yeah those were things that stood out to me yes and twist in this story that you end up finding out while she's like digging in and getting all this paperwork requesting you know disclosure of documentation is that the government and everybody knows it's happening and it's okay like (laughs) legally yes it's okay i'm not condoning any of this no but that legally they know all of this even if they can't trace the amounts of the main pollutant that is talked about here is dioxin which is used and enters our water supply in their town through the process of bleaching paper from this mill and it's classified i guess as a persistent organic pollutant so it's federally recognized but is accepted widely mm-hmm. Like there's a certain amount that is okay in the body. And it baffles me that there's any amount that would be okay in the body. And when you think about it and something that she points out, it's like, it's not just in my body, but like if I had grown up in this area, it would have been in my mom's body. It would have been in my grandmother's body. Like it's like passed down through generations. So you're already getting it without even actually ingesting any of the food because it came from, you know, your biology, which I was like, ugh, mm-hmm. I don't want to know all the things that are in my yes. bloodstream right now. Yeah. Ugh. Yes. Although it does mention that approximately 90% of dioxin supposedly enters our body through food sources. Yes. So directly going into their water supply, fish, Lobster (laughs) in Maine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I learned, don't eat lobster. Yes, although it's delicious if you eat fish. Yes. Or shellfish. 
And also to clarify, there are like very specific pieces of lobster that the EPA, I think, in particular says, basically, you should not eat these. But in general, the EPA says lobsters safe to eat, mm-hmm. but not specific portions of their anatomy, which is yes a whole other thing. But <laughs> there's just lots of products that I learned about here. Mm-hmm. Very informative in that mind-boggling. Yes. And I think something that I also learned was, so the original founders of the mill, eventually they sold it and they had been taking the waste from the mill and like burying it outside of the land but it was creating these like black sludge bubbles that were showing up in the river and then in this guy's well water and when a new company comes in and buys say a paper mill they are responsible for like whatever is left over that is contaminated which I didn't know that. You would think that when you buy something, if it's defective, that that goes to the other partner or agency to fix it. But that is not how it works. And ultimately, like, the only people that are suffering are the townspeople Mm -hmm. and the town itself because... The company, they like to keep things quiet. There's lots of stories in the book about mill workers who were like chemically exposed or uh, like a job site accident. And like good mill workers, they would go to the mill infirmary first before hopefully not going to the hospital, but eventually, you know, some of them would end up there and then go back to look at their mill health records and there would be no sign of what actually happened they would say you know so-and-so reported flu-like symptoms when actually so-and-so had been like chemically burned and it was like chemically burned his lungs and later on he developed pneumonia and there is no record of his accident in any of the files of the mill so there's like some shady things happening there Shady things all around, I think. Yes. At one point, all this kind of backstory with the shadiness, as Aaron so (laughs) eloquently put it, of the company and also kind of the follow-up shadiness, I guess, of the government's position on some of these things leads the author to talk about, are there any real experts And the kind of conversation around distrust and how that is bred in places like Mexico, Maine and Rumford, Maine with the government and where those kinds of things stem from. And then that also led to kind of discussion of political leanings in small towns and how people feel represented or not by their government. Mm hmm which it's just another example of when our institutions fail us. Yes, and why it makes sense for people to become skeptical of what the government is telling them. It's hard to stay apolitical sometimes in the library land that we are in, but it makes sense 
to me how some people can be, for example, vaccinations. We'll just go there today. (laughs) We're just going to do it. Why there are people that would be skeptical of getting a vaccine that the government says you need to do or that, you know, the Center for Disease Control says you need to have this vaccine because there are lots of instances where the people that we've put our trust in have let us down and it's not too far to get to that place where you're like, well, why should I trust what the government or the CDC is saying when they let DDT be an okay pesticide for a long time until, you know, Rachel Carson made a big stink about it and let us all know that it's poison, basically. So I will say that I do believe in vaccinations and I mostly trust the CDC and the government, but I empathize and can understand how people do not. And I feel like in the book, there's definitely, and she talks about it throughout where it's like, oh, ha ha, we're in Cancer Valley. There was that whole documentary about Cancer Valley and what the mill was doing. And there's a lot of people that were like, yes, all of this is true. And I still support the mill because that's how I make my money and feed my family. And then there was other people that were like, yes, all of this is true. And we need to get the mill out and shut it down and do all of this cleanup. And then, you know, there's like the mill officials who were like, none of this is true. This is blatant lies. And it's really hard when you are up against forces that don't seem to take you as an individual small, not rich person Mm -hmm. into account. And I think that's really sad. And I think it gets to the heart of a lot of places in America where there has been manufacturing and industry that has helped sustain an economy for so long and then it leaves. I think about, you know, like the furniture manufacturers in the South, like North Carolina, I think they had a lot that when everything was going overseas in the 90s that left a lot of people without jobs and it's the same thing Mm -hmm. where i'm sure there's environmental stains but also it's the people that are left behind and nobody thinks about them and then those places are often ripe for other industry to move in which the whole nestle waters thing that happens in this book where i was just like oh Do you want to talk about that? Yes, please. (laughs) Chapter 11. Yes. So Nestle Water decides that they're going to try to basically buy the water from the town's main river source. And I can't remember the name of the river right now. The Androscoggin. Androscoggin, that's right. Yes, and so this is happening, actually, I mentioned earlier Rumford, which is a town very close to Mexico, Maine. So they're going to come in, they're trying to negotiate to pull out all this water from this town's main water supply, and then have it bottled and, you know, distributed all over the United States, all over the world. So there are all these meetings that are happening and it seems to take on a lot of issues that we see as far as like our author tries to get involved and just yes, just like, like the water fails. Board. <laughs> yes so she approaches the water board 
And they're essentially trying to block all of their citizens out, it feels like, is kind of the feeling that she gets and she gives us as readers. They hold meetings at really inappropriate times in the middle of the day where... Three o'clock yeah, in where, the afternoon. Where, you know, people who have children are picking kids up, where maybe workers are still, you know, in the middle of their job. They're not going to take time off to attend. So they are pushing through this contract with Nestle. It's a big cluster cuss because the people on the water board... They don't want anybody's input. What they see it as is a way to help the infrastructure in Rumford and in Mexico. So they see it as a way to get money to do some like improvement projects for the downtown, which is desperately in need of like getting their water main fixed and sidewalks and things like that. But Nestle, their Poland Springs brand, they would pay for all of that stuff that needs to be done but at what cost? And also when you have this giant mega corporation like Nestle moving in where it's already problematic in so many other parts of the developing world because of like their marketing of baby milk formula. That's a whole nother thing that you can look up on your own. It might make you really mad. And it's taking advantage of people that are not paying attention, which is why it's really important for everyone to stay involved in local politics because you know this is what happens and I mean who knows if people were like getting you know kind of like money in completely above board ways that were on I'm not saying that the water board was you know acting out of sorts but they were certainly not very amenable to any sort of criticism of this plan that they have decided that they are going to do because they want to buy out people's farmland to, you know, drill into the aquifer. And what does that mean for the landowners? And I don't know. It's just very frustrating for this little town because you know they need the money. But at what cost? Right. And essentially taking also public land, essentially, because at one point they're just per- purchasing straight up land in this and taking those public lands and putting them into private hands, I think is at one point a phrase that gets used. And maybe that was also taken from Rachel Carson. Mm -hmm. But the stripping of those things that should belong to everybody, essentially, and depriving people of those natural resources Yeah, which I think also brings up an interesting point about there is a perception about Maine and Mainers and also Vermont and Vermonters where, like, if your ancestry did not go back to the Mayflower or before that, like, you're basically an outsider. And it's not necessarily the most welcoming place. Now, I'm not saying all Maine and all Vermont people are like that. It's just, that's the perception. And so for Carrie to like make inroads, she really has to rely on the network of the in people because she moved, she left town and then she got married and her husband was in Massachusetts. Yes. But they also lived in like California and in the Caribbean because he was in the military. And so they moved around a lot. So she really had to work her way back into people's 
good graces to even like talk to her about all of these different issues. And I think that this whole drama with the water board kind of stems from her being this outsider because she does not live there. She travels back and forth all the time because her family's still there and her dad turns out he's dying of cancer shocker because he works at the mill and because she lives in Connecticut they just don't see her as I don't want to say good enough but like you know she left and I think that that's the other whole thing throughout the book is that what happens when you leave a small town like that yeah you can become maybe more successful in, in different ways but like like you can't go back and it, it can never be the, the way that it was so I don't know that whole Nestle debacle seems really bad they put their rights over the people's rights that already live there and they don't think about things like the roads with their heavy trucks rumbling through them and like who's going to pay for the new roads and that sort of thing so it's these really big issues that she's trying to drill down to the essence of. And this is not necessarily like a really optimistic book. No. I think it left me feeling kind of hollow because you realize like how once you start uncovering this like multitude of facts about this place that you thought you knew so well, it's like the Hydra like you cut off one head and another grows back and it's like you can't ever get on top of it. I don't know, that's kind of my takeaway, which is really uplifting. <laughs> Sorry, friends. <laughs> Amy and I like to talk about really heavy subjects. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. The amount of hardship is definitely one to wade through in this book because you see it from all sides in this community. There's that one point where we then get later into the book after talking about the health factors and these environmental toxins and these deals that are happening to sell off a huge chunk of water to a mega corporation. And we start talking about free lunch programs. Oh, yeah. And providing meals for children and youth outside of the school year and it's just amazing so how she gets into this is she has a friend who's a local school teacher and she goes to visit her at the school to talk about economic and social factors and sit in on the classes and she talks about the lack of funding for these meals for kids who are low income and she talks about how I want to say it was like over 75% of their town's population qualified mm -hmm. based on the federal guidelines but there was almost no support for the program and that it was amazing to hear I guess just the lack of perceived need in that instance when at some point she talks about how all of these economic factors also affect those children's lives. As we know in a lot of small towns especially, the high rates of alcoholism, the fact that you know she knew several families who didn't have a car to get to work or even an oven to cook food. Mm -hmm. 
just boggled my mind that there was such a lack of support with something like lunch for kids during the summer. Yeah, and just like the poverty rates are rising and there's always this looming mill like on the hill that is always blowing smoke and debris and like the kids who live closest to the mill are looked down on because it smells like paper making is a dirty business and their dishes were often coated with like sulfur dust it seemed and you know that is just what it was and so the fact that because in my job at the library I work with kids and we do offer snack and we help out at the summer lunch program and just that whole idea about feeding kids and then you know everybody gets into oh well you know kids need to eat healthy and they need to have you know this on their plate and that on their plate and like there's that whole section about they don't want to drink white milk they want chocolate milk and there's people that well I don't want to support that because they're feeding the kids junk and they only drink chocolate milk but it's like no this is what the kids will eat chocolate milk is full of protein and it's also full of calories but like that's what these kids need and you know kind of get off your high horse because why not help in the ways that you can instead of like judging how the help is being offered yes i don't know i had kind of forgotten about the free lunch thing and that also made me sad yeah also can we just talk about the fact that we are librarians our world revolves around books that are made of paper yeah and reading this book i just started to feel more and more like Mm -hmm. contributing to the problem but also i don't know i really had feelings (laughs) yes (laughs) lots of feelings about that and we'll also say that while i simultaneously learned about the amount of dioxin essentially poisoning that's happening to produce most books there's also an alternative to this type of paper bleaching that doesn't heavily pollute our ecosystem and it's just not used because it's not profitable as profitable yeah (laughs) and it's been done this way for x many years and they have the machinery to do it this way it's a combination it sounds like to me as an outsider that this is a fear of change combined with just unsure of how to execute on a large scale potentially Mm -hmm. and you have to have the companies that want the paper made be willing to invest in something that they're not sure about when because profit it's cheaper to outsource it to like india or brazil or some other place where it's not as regulated as it is in the united states which oh my god if like this is regulated I don't ever want to know about things that are third world country. And I don't mean that in a, like a pejorative way. It's just, you know, unlike in India, we, I don't know what their rules are, but I imagine that they're probably lax because why else would companies be taking their products over to places that aren't here? Well, it's because money, like corporate greed, boo. <laughs> Yes, I will 100% reiterate that I had those same feelings of, oh my God, I love books. Mm -hmm. What am I doing? Mm -hmm. 
But also then we go down the rabbit hole of, okay, smartphones and... Mm-hmm. <laughs> All the things. And mining and, yeah. And then we just delve ourselves into a deeper and deeper hole. Yes. I actually would like to visit Mexico, Maine, because there is that Babe the Blue Ox statue yes. that she talks about. <laughs> like the weird Paul Bunyan thing, which I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. There's pictures on Google, by the way, if, if anybody has to yes. go and look that up. Yes, I did spend some time looking at the map today so I could orient myself a little bit better. About That's so funny, I did that too. <laughs> in the town, there's like 2,700 people in it now, which is pretty small. And there's the mill that's still there, but a lot of blight, I think. It was interesting because I've read a lot about the opioid epidemic, which I probably mention every time I'm on Amy's podcast. (laughs) I was surprised that that hadn't moved in or Mm -hmm. that she didn't talk about it because they did talk about people kind of squatting in some of the houses. Yes. And just like the houses themselves seem kind of fascinating, like how they were built and kind of like slipshod manner. Mm-hmm. It was like that one kid who was like helping to rebuild his parents' house. His dad referred to it as like built by Mickey Mouse because it was like nothing was square. And anyways, I think his kid kind of had a hard time because what do you do for work out there? And so he was kind of learning carpentry kind of on his own. and helping to fix up the house but and then there was like the neighbor lady up the street from them kind of at the beginning she was an old lady that people didn't like very much and she needed to go into a home but she was too stubborn and wouldn't go and so her house was lovely but also like had kind of fallen into disrepair and they had like spray painted something naughty on the snow in front of her house or something it just made me sad yeah because I bet the town was super cute like so many places when it first started and when it was great. And I think that that's one of the problems. I think people, and I would include myself in this, where we think of small towns, we think, oh, small town charm. And like everyone knows everyone, which is true, but that everything is great. And then you leave and go back to your town and are like, whoa, wait a minute. like everything's not so great and it's just like this veneer of Mm -hmm. things being a certain way Mm -hmm. um and i think that's really hard for people to deal with and it's hard when you live there and you see all this change happening not for the better for your town but you are you know given images and images and images about things being so great everywhere else and you start to get into that mindset of like well you know, it's so great everywhere else. Why aren't things great here? And then it's really easy for politicians to swoop in and say, you know, let I'm going to help make this a place that's great again. And when it doesn't happen, I think there's a lot of anger and a lot of sadness that happens in some of these towns. And, you know, I think it takes a dedicated few and I think it has to start from grassroots and work its way up because that's the only way things will change but then when you have been in a place like Maine for 400 years it's not easy to change so I don't know this was really hard to figure out 
And she, like, ultimately That's exactly what she says, yeah. right? I feel like we need to, like, find a, like, a ray of sunshine somewhere. I don't know what that is. Maybe that one dude's Patriot Parade? <gasps> oh, my gosh, his Patriot Parade. I forgot about that. Didn't they get, like, a cheerleader to come in or something? Yes. So it was after the... Super, Super Bowl, Bowl. Mm-hmm. and he wanted to get the trophy to also come through I think yeah and he didn't get the trophy but they like made a replica or something yes. for it but the cheerleader did come through for the parade and like was I think carrying it or something and yes. it was a lovely story and like an example of like leadership and true trying to create community and belonging and pride in your community, which yes. was very uplifting. And she came home specifically for his parade. Yes. Like, to witness it, because the guy that did it, he, like, would raise money for people with cancer or little kids that had cancer, and he was just a guy that had never left town. And I thought that was super charming. And, like, people just came out and did the parade. People just walked in it and- And he essentially paid, like you said, he raised money, but like, I think he basically paid for all the expenses to actually have the parade itself. And literally all of the money, all of the proceeds went to the cause that he was supporting. Yes, which is a great thing about small towns is that people are used to rallying around a cause and doing fun things to help their neighbor out. And I think that's great. There it is. There's our silver lining, folks. Yes, we did it. We found it. It was hard, but we did it. (laughs) And thank you for joining us for it. If you did enjoy Milltown or planning to read it, or maybe you're just looking for something similar to it to add to your reading list, I do have one suggestion for you all, which unfortunately is going to sound really hard. (laughs) But the pain gap. How Sexism and Racism in Healthcare Kill Women. I would highly recommend reading. I know it sounds, and it is, the whole premise is pretty heart-wrenching, but I promise you won't regret reading it if you're a nonfiction fan. Can I plug one? Tightrope on making it or something in America. I think it was on Amazon. Jennifer Garner was involved in it. And it talks about another small town in Oregon yam hill but then it kind of extrapolates out throughout the rest of the country that also i think is kind of similar to milltown without the heavy environmental part of it but that one sounds good too amy yeah it definitely is both of those actually i might have to add that one to my list too but i will be back in april with kayla from norwick easter public library to discuss how much of these hills is gold by c pam chang Hope you'll join us again. Bye. Bye.